A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Building out scalable automated access for data mesh at Disney Streaming. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Himateja Madala, who's a senior data engineering manager and head of the data mesh data platform at Disney Streaming. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own views on the episode. So here are some key takeaways, thoughts from Himateja's point of view. Number one, potentially controversial one to start out, your existing data platform or platforms might not be able to serve data mesh well, even with reasonable augmentation, especially if your data platform has become hard to change. You might have to build from scratch. Scott, note that is something that there's just so much back and forth as to should this be Greenfield or should you be adopting what you've already got and trying to augment it? I think this is good to say it might not be good enough and that can be okay. Number two, When the data platform's key users aren't part of the centralized team, you need to think about enabling automated capabilities by default, such as security the second data lands, or easy to leverage and understand monitoring and observability, right? If the people aren't part of that central data team that are going to be using the platform, you've got to start to figure out what capabilities are just going to be kind of table stakes for them. Number three, potentially controversial, data products serving different use cases often end up looking pretty different. Is your data product for dashboards and reporting or analytics? Is it for serving a recommendation engine or a machine machine learning model? Or is it more for internal kind of usage? Be okay with data products looking pretty different, not being that uniform. Number four, even if your data mesh platform operates outside the traditional paradigms, many data producers, especially data engineers, will still be thinking data pipelines. Be prepared for that. It's an ingrained way of thinking for many. So just by saying we're doing data mesh, it doesn't change everything that they've done to date. Number five, data contracts are very helpful in defining and maintaining data quality. If you set up good observability of your data products, Owners can quickly identify when there are quality challenges. Number six, when building out your platform, user conversations are crucial. Go and focus on pain points. The coolest capabilities in the world won't lead to good adoption if you aren't addressing the real pain and needs. Scott note here, find the friction. Number seven, automation and blueprints are key to scalability in a data mesh data platform. 
Teams need to be empowered to easily do their work. Number eight, don't only focus on creating the tooling to process and share data in the abstract. Dig into how teams will share information with each other, how they will communicate. That isn't only exchanging data via data products. Number nine, if you have domains inside your organization that want to share data or information with each other, it is hard to get to a place where consumers can actually trust the data without a lot of explicit enablement of trust at scale. Enabling trust at scale is a key role of the platform. Scott, note here, the amount of times that things go wrong simply because people don't trust the data is so huge. It is probably the hidden boogeyman of everything data related. So look at how you can enable trust trust at scale. Number 10, enabling teams to go at the speed of their business through owning their own infrastructure really drives good buy-in. It might take slightly longer to get something spun up, you know, the infrastructure for the first data product, but they quickly learn and will often strongly prefer that visibility and control they now have. They can move at the speed of their own business. Number 11, when requests for new capabilities come to the data platform team, you need to consider how to generalize the capability to be applicable to more use cases if possible. And sometimes the right answer is the platform can't support that one-off need. This one comes up in a lot of the conversations around platforms. I wish we had something, sorry, the Scott note here, but that I wish we had something more about how how to actually do that from a step-by-step basis around generalization because it's really, really important to get right. Number 12, centralize your governance capabilities in the platform, but federate the decision-making. There should be standard approaches to access control to make it easy for people. You know, as an example, this is what federated governance really is about. So number 13, I think this one is controversial, and I think people should really look at this. Disney streaming has very strong RBAC or role-based access control policies to make it very easy to delineate who should have access to what. But if you have a certain clearance level for one domain, you have that clearance level for all domains. So Scott, note, this is about 35 minutes into the interview, so about 45 minutes into this uh, you know, podcast episode. It's a really interesting approach. I, could see it, I couldn't see it working for highly regulated industries, but it's working very well for Disney streaming. I think it's something people should really poke at and lean into, figure out, does this work for us? Number 14, potentially controversial one, preventing data from leaving the mesh under any circumstances is an effective risk control. If someone somehow gets access to something they probably shouldn't have access to, the blast radius is quite contained because that data can't leave the mesh. Finally, number 15, if you have any data sharing agreements with partners, make sure to keep their access heavily contained. Create specific spaces or kind of cloud accounts with strong rules to prevent them from getting improper access to any parts of your data. This is something that Hemateja really wanted to stress kind of at the end of the episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Hima Teja Madala here, who is the Senior Data Engineering Manager, as well as the head of the Data Mesh platform for Disney Streaming. To be clear, though, she is only representing her own views, not that of the company. And we're going to talk about a lot of kind of interesting things along the Disney Streaming journey. Um, you know, she has done a, a great presentation that we'll link in the show notes as well at AWS reInvent about kind of a lot of the specifics. And we'll, we'll talk about 
um, kind of the the platform journey and how we can kind of think of this as almost you know a Disney fairy tale of what are the big baddies along the way? How do we overcome them? How do we think about um, getting to good and being okay with okay at the start? And um, but a lot of the also things of of Disney streaming's platform specifically does a lot of things that a lot of people are will be really jealous of when we start to talk about. So kind of, of getting to that place of granting automated access in a federated and secure way and using kind of personas and hierarchy and, and how do we get there. So, but before we get into that, um, if you don't mind, if you could give a bit of an introduction to yourself and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Um, myself, Hima Teja Madala. So um, I've been in the data world for about 15 years now. Um, I've, I've started when the Hadoop buzz started in 2010. And since then, there's no going back. I've played various roles of uh, being a data engineer myself, writing so many data pipelines, managing teams of uh, data engineers. And uh, then I took a little bit pivot. And uh, right now I'm uh, in the data infrastructure world. So for the last two years, um, I'm leading uh, the data platforms team, building a brand new platform based on, you know, all the principles of uh, the data mesh. And that's what I'm here to talk about today. (laughs) Awesome. And and I think that that transitions well into a good kind of opening conversation question, which is, you you said kind of building a new platform. A lot of people in data mesh are either iterating off existing platform or building new and kind of uh, how, how did you think about approaching that, that question, that conversation? Because, you know, is it that if people can build new, they should, or is it more, you kind of had existing capabilities and we're like, Hey, we're going to augment these or like, how did you think about that initial conversation? And, um, and we can talk about like maybe even getting some of the buy-in and stuff to to go and, and invest in this. But I think that's something that a lot of people are really, really interested in trying to figure out. Should should we build Greenfield? Do we have to build Greenfield? How did you kind of think about that? Yeah. So uh, to take a step back, right? I think a lot of organizations are in at were at a place um, are at a place where we were um, when we started this where uh, we had multiple platforms, uh, not one, but multiple platforms where people were running their data engineering workloads. There was no um, centralized governance in place, um, you know, to to look for, um, uh, you know, the, how, how to operate these platforms and all the access and stuff like that. So uh, at that point, we looked at and we said that, can we can we do something to augment this current platform and bring it to this new standard that everybody's talking about? Is it even possible, right? And the plain answer was no. It's we have to start over because this platform has grown in so many directions that it's simply not possible to augment, right? And uh, having these three different monolithic platforms means the augmentation is much more harder. That as opposed to you know starting out uh, brand new is is the way to f- go. Yeah, I think that is kind of something that's coming through a lot. Is if you can get away with going brand new, it's it's a lot easier. But um, but I mean, you probably had at least a lot of these capabilities that you could kind of you already knew how you were going to do them, how other people were leveraging them, and that you could kind of rebuild. Like when, when you first started, a lot of people look at. Um, I basically just need processing and storage and access control. <laughs> and that's kind of it. Like we can talk about what you did, but also what would you kind of recommend where people start, right? You know, it, you can talk about what you learned along that way, but like, how do you think people should start with the platform? Like, is it, did you kind of say, okay, we're going to build this alongside some people say I need to build a platform before we start to build any use cases or what what if you could go back and give yourself some advice around that I would love to hear what you did but also what you think that if you could do it again that <laughs> how you could have saved yourself some headaches <laughs> um so like go- going back right the 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 pattern that you were telling that I need some data, I need some place to save the data, I need some compute and some some access, right? That's really the old way of looking at data processing. 
right? We are in this new age of data platforms and data processing where, you know, you need much more than that uh, where data has to be discoverable, you know, there has to be a clear ownership of the data and there, like, really the concepts of uh, data as a product, right? Um, as, As we as we mature and grow, right, this is the new way of uh, thinking about um, how we process and consume data. So what what were those capabilities that you think would be necessary at the start? I mean, was it a data catalog or was it, you know, and how did you get kind of to feeling something was good enough? Because that, that seems to be the thing, especially with platforms, is people want to build something that's perfect instead of it's good enough for now and we're going to learn and iterate. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when when we earlier did data processing, we would not think about, you know, all the augmented features that were that were definitely necessary. I, at that time, that, that was what was sufficient and it sufficed our needs. So we did it. But then as we grew, you know, it no longer fits the bill. So today, if we're talking about data processing, we need to talk about uh, data security you know, from the time, you know, the data lands, right? How do you handle data security? How do you make sure that all your um, processing systems are observable so something goes wrong, right? You know exactly, um, you know, where to pinpoint and how how you can quickly fix the problem, right? Um, And then um, how do you organize uh, your data so that it's it's, um, accessible, right? So that means as soon as, you know, you want to... um, include a new new uh, data product right now uh, you want you want to include the new data product you you have to put it in the data catalog and make it available for all your users do you have anything what, when you're thinking about making data accessible like i think that's it is such a core need what were you looking at that more from a process standpoint or a technology standpoint you know as the platform person i know tech Tech people like to tech, right? Like data people like to <laughs> to data, and so mm-hmm. like, how did you think about like understanding what people actually need from that accessibility standpoint, and how how did you make it so that people could be have data that's accessible by default? We could talk about that from either the producer side or the consumer side, or like, how do you think about that? problem because I, I haven't heard people talk about this much. It's it's a hard, hard problem and it's very hard to articulate. It's very hard to be like, why isn't the data accessible versus this is exactly what you've got to do. So like any color you can give there, I think helps a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, when you talk about data accessibility, right, you need to uh, shift your thinking to building data as a product, right? What that means is your, your data products are like are, are in different categories. One is um, your data product is either serving some dashboards for analytics and reporting, right? So that's one of the categories. The other is your data product is serving some recommendation engines or some machine learning models, right? Um, so where um, you're you're directly providing better cu- uh, customer experience, right? Or the third is your products are serving some internal uh, internal customers right your um, teams within your organization right? for for analytics and uh, such stuff so um i think the fundamental point is to think of um you know shift your thinking to being data as a product and when you were working with with people to actually shift to that mentality mm-hmm. Where do you think was the hardest? Like, or what do you still think is the hardest? Because I think this is the the thing that a lot of people think is anybody who's talking about their data mesh journey is done with their data mesh journey, which is silly. Uh, just just had a, a panel recording uh, recently with some leaders and everyone going, it's still ongoing. We aren't done at all, right? Um, when you were talking to these people and you were talking about like, what do they need from the platform? Like, you know, I mean, we can talk specifically, especially about the automated access and that that kind of thing. But like, what were the capabilities that you thought they would need versus what are the capabilities that they actually were like, this is what we actually need? Because I'm getting a lot of feedback of people saying, oh, it was just like easy path and it was like blueprints and it was 
you know, hey, define data quality for us so that we can actually just, you know, you're talking about observability and things like that we can actually share with our consumers what we mean when we say data quality. Our consumers can say, we need this level of data quality on this specific um, metric. So was there anything that you found that was kind of surprising in that, that you were expecting to be focusing more on the processing aspect or more on the um, accessibility aspect or anything like that? Yeah, so regarding this, uh, right, so different, uh, you know, different people had uh, different requirements for this. So if you talk about, you know, the... um, C-suite execs or, you know, SVPs, VPs, they are like, oh, can you focus on data privacy? Can you focus on data security? Can you focus on the legal aspects of all of this, right? Whereas if I talk to the data scientists and um, the ML engineers, they are like, can you please focus on the data quality, right? Uh, So that we, our, our models are working better because ultimately it boils down to how good your data is, right? The efficiency of your model, right? Um, so, so this is this is the these were the two things uh, that we heard. Um, the engineers are like still in the data pipelines, pipelines, right? That's because it's so ingrained into our head, um, and with with business context missing. So we had to stitch together all of these, and the platform had to serve all of these these needs at once. Yeah, the, the serving multiple users seems to be really a, a very common theme of like, what is your actual data user experience? And that you don't have a user persona, you have many, many user personas. <laughs> and, uh, you know, who's directly consuming from the mesh versus who's consuming from something that's consuming from the mesh, like the the dashboards and reporting and stuff. So um, how did you start to think about, especially that that quality aspect is something that a lot of people are trying to figure out. And and it sounded like what you were just saying there was your platform even takes on more than a lot of what other people's platforms are, are taking on. So, you know, bravo for, for taking that on. But how, how did you think about that quality aspect? Because I think, you know, that is one of the big baddies. And, you know, people saying my data quality isn't good enough. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? Like, how do you get specific? How do you think about that? You know, was it that you have started to do some data contract stuff or that you kind of set out and said, hey, here's what, here are the metrics around data quality and we'll help you monitor your metrics. You as a data producer and data consumer have to set what your quality metrics are going to be because, you know, if something needs, only needs to be computed every week, once a week, then, you know, me saying your SLA has to be with a five minute SLA of timeliness is is ridiculous. But like, how did you start to approach that conversation with people? Because I think this is one where people kind of expect the platform team to be able to wave their magic wand, right? You know, especially thinking of, you know, the Disney kind of uh, uh, or or fairy princess wand or whatever that, uh, you know, you're going to turn the pumpkin into a carriage and then if you're not careful, it turns back into a pumpkin. So like, how, how did you think about what should be on the, the, the platform team? And then how did you start to approach, like, how do we actually get to better quality and what does better quality mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for the quality aspect, right, um, there are two things here. One is, obviously, you talked about it a little bit, uh, the data contracts, right? So any data assets that are onboarded, uh, we make sure that, um, you know, the contract is in place and um, it's um, you're, you're following the contract. Uh, but then this, the later part is uh, setting up observability on top of um, the, uh, the data assets itself, Right, so that if if something is not in line, um, you you know what's going on, and you can go back and uh, fix it. Who who do you find is consuming the observability info? Is it more the consumers or the producers, or is it kind of both? So it's it's actually the the domain owners. So um, we 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 have domain owners set up, um, and we have constant alerting on top of that. So these people uh, will be alerted if, um, you know, things are not um, meeting the threshold. 
I, I think there's a lot of people who, with observability and data contracts, are expecting that the people who will be looking at SLA compliance are the consumers themselves instead of the producers. Are you finding that the consumers are able to, because trust is difficult, right? So are consumers actually going and and just trusting, or are they also constantly looking at the kind of, is somebody hitting their SLAs that they're saying they're going to hit in their contract? Is it is it that consumers are able to just kind of trust or is there still that kind of missing trust there? Uh, it is on a case-by-case basis. Uh, there are some domains where we have a very good uh, contracts in place and um, very clearly defined uh, ownership and responsibilities. Um, so there it works. Some ways, some places, it's a gray area we are still figuring out. So, but but to back to your point, right? Um, I think when the when the observability system alerts, it's not just the consumer; it's both. Uh, it's the producer also. So both parties are alerted that um, you know it's um, there is a violation here, and something needs to be fixed. Yeah, I think that that. Engendering trust is is difficult, but it's crucial. And so, yeah, I, I like that. Um, one thing that we were planning on talking about was kind of just the overall successes of of what you've seen here. And success in data mesh can mean many different things. It can be direct business value, and and you know, kind of measuring that and and showing that, or it can be kind of hidden beneath the scenes or anything like that. So, I'd like to just kind of hear a little bit about like how the journey went and what what have been kind of the milestones along the way of you know what what has been those successes and maybe if if you ran across some of those baddies along the way like how did you uh you know avoid the ursula or anything like that how did you kind of get away and and uh continue to drive towards value so we set out uh, on this journey uh, to become the center of excellence uh, especially for all the data engineering teams. And one of the goal was to standardize how data engineering is done across so many teams. So we have 15 plus teams running on our platform, um, right? And earlier they were running on different platforms with uh, with not so, not so much of, sta- of standardization. So uh, that's what uh, we started off. But um, obviously the first thing was there was a big doubt. Will this even work? right it's just it's just such a lofty goal will it will it work but i think we we uh, we embarked on this journey keeping uh, you know our end users in mind so that's where we started first with listening to what their pain points were from this existing platform because we don't want to build a new platform that's similar to what it is and you know it's it's a it's a failure so uh, we we were heavily heavily focused on our end users. Even today, even the day we started till today, we are heavily focused on uh, the end users, and uh, we are also uh, heavily focused on the characteristics of the data itself. Everything that we do is focused on the data and its characteristics, like you know whether it's financial data, whether it's PI data, non-PI data, right? That's where everything that we are, we have organized is um, defined on. Right from you know your core S three storage to to your analytics tools like Databricks or all the control planes, yeah, right. So that's where it's focused. So um, we wanted to become the center of excellence, but again, we didn't want to become this bottleneck, right? which is what normally happens. Is like there's there's a data engineering team and there's a data infrastructure team, and the ball gets thrown over the wall between these two things of whose responsibility is what. Right. So the way we achieved a center of excellence is by, um, you know, um, providing teams um, the autonomy to do what they want. Right. Our role is to automate things and provide the blueprints uh, to each of these teams. Right. And from there, uh, the teams, they can belong to one or more domains. They will take this and they will autonomously run stuff. Right. So that self-serve um, capabilities was our first milestone into achieving this 
So we rolled out a lot of these blueprints and uh, self-serve capabilities and asked the data engineering teams to take over their infrastructure management, right? And first, at first, there was like a hue and cry, like, this is not our job. But as they rammed up on it, they they realized that it was so much more easier than, you know, um, depending on one central, you know, team, which is doing all of this. Right, so teams um, were autonomous and they could move faster uh, with this approach. So that was the first milestone. Uh, the second milestone was uh, going ahead and building all these tools uh, that will help us standardize the process. Like by tools, I mean you know the observability tools, uh, the the anonymization tools. And when we talk about all these different domains, there's a lot of cross-communication. So how do, how do you develop tools so all of these domains can talk to each other? Right? So we did all of that. That was a second milestone. And finally, uh, we had to stitch all these pieces together. And that's where uh, we, we said, now it's a data pipeline as a service. Right? So each of these teams, these data engineering teams, which are writing pipelines, will use the data pipeline as a service, which means that all these extra features uh, that I talked about, you know, the security, the observability, uh, the anonymization and whatnot, right? All of these come as part of, you know, your pipeline. So we will we will give you the blueprint for the pipeline and all you have to do is go ahead and just implement your business logic and ta-da, you just get observability and security and everything as part of you know what's done. So, did they have um, these? Did these teams already have data engineering capabilities in them, or did you have to work with them to up their their uh, data capabilities within the domains? Or because it sounded like they already had that, right? That you could say they have the data engineering capabilities, uh, but again, their mindset was just pipelines, pipelines. Um, whereas we had to shift their mindset and almost kind of force onto them all these extra things, right? Because if you want to be a sustainable, scalable um, platform, um, you need to have all of this. And do you, so one thing that's been kind of coming out of uh, some implementations versus others is, you know, some, some organizations, their domains were already good about consuming their own data, but a lot mm-hmm. of organizations, the domains themselves aren't even really capable of handling their own data all that well. So, mm-hmm. you know, without throwing anybody under the bus or anything like that, but like, who has been the kind of bigger benefit when you look at kind of domains doing this work? Is it the domains themselves that they're actually able to handle their data better and extract more value? And then other domains can also leverage that data? Or are you finding that most of the the value was in making it so that that other domains could consume it? Because this is something that's been kind of bothering some people about buy-in where people are saying, well, we want this domain's data, so we're going to go to them and demand they they provide us their data. But there's not really a good incentive for them to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so in our case, um, domains wanted to uh, you know share the data, but the but the problem was there was no um, trust. Um, you you didn't know whether the data was fresh, whether it was good, whether you can use it all of that, right? So this standardization process improved the trust. Um, And when I mean uh, standardization, one is the data contracts itself, but then uh, the data lineage, uh, the conformance to uh, the SLAs, right? All of this uh, improved uh, the trust. So I would say that in our case, it's like domains talking to other domains and uh, sharing the data, that was better. That's it's it's interesting simply because in a lot of organizations there's just been way more pushback. But it sounds like the domains were already like, "Hey, we understand that if we participate in the sharing culture, that it, it means benefit for all of us." But a lot of times, no domain wants to be the first one to go because mm-hmm. then they're like, "I'm providing all this this value for others," versus it's not coming back to me immediately. And so I think that that story is 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 difficult. But um, another thing that you talked about that I wanted to hit on was the the teams could move faster. Bit this this is coming up a lot as well. Of 
when we give teams the ability to not have to go through the centralized team and not have these bottlenecks that they realize that they can go at their own pace, whether that's faster or somewhat slower, right? Of somebody going, okay, we really, we don't know how to do this. So we want to take our time. We want to go through it versus everybody trying to push everybody through the same kind of process. Do you have any kind of metrics or, or even just kind of thinking about it, you know, not like, oh, these teams went from six weeks to three weeks to to one and a half weeks or anything like that. But like, how have you felt that speed up, right? Is is it simply that there's less coordination and so teams can kind of do things and they're doing things in smaller pieces and so they're able to more quickly deliver or is it that they're able to deliver bigger projects in, in quicker amount of time or like, how is that manifested and like, you know, not giving exact numbers or anything because, you know, measurement is always a little goofy in data, but like, how has that felt, right? Like, is it, is it felt like they're going way faster or they're capable of going way faster when it makes sense? Or like, how have you really thought about that speed, speed up? Yeah. So regarding the speed aspect, right? Again, I'll talk about how, uh, you know, this, uh, the ball was pushed from data engineering to data infrastructure, right? So because of that uh, the, the, that fundamental mode of operation, um, the data engineers had no um, insight into what's happening in the infrastructure world. Right? It was literally a black box and uh, they would just raise a ticket or probably you know, an epic and then just just keep waiting for the data infrastructure team, right? But in this new paradigm where uh, we automate and we we give it the autonomy to them, right? They are um, having, you know, a, a part in it, right? So once they are also involved in it and they are able to better assess if, if this is the pipeline we were to stand up, how much time it would take. So they would, they were able to plan better, right? Things were suddenly in their control, as opposed to being a, a black box, right? And um, and one and most importantly, right? Once they've gone through the whole process for one pipeline, maybe, right? Um, they they have learned it already, right? So the next one is faster. Whereas um, the previous approach, where they just push the ball to the data engine, data infrastructure team, that's not scalable because they're just pushing it and waiting and waiting, right? Whereas now things are in their control, uh, it's only that initial ramp up phase um, is a little hard, but after that it just gets faster. Yeah, it's that that slow down to speed up. It's that slow down to to be like, okay, we're going to make this something that is repeatable, so that the second that you you start to do this again and again, it just becomes very easy, and you can focus on what matters instead mm-hmm. of you know. And and it sounds like. Um, kind of the, the previous thing with lots of different platforms, it was kind of custom built every time versus like, hey, if something needs to be custom for this one use case, we'll talk about it. But this covers 80, 90% of the use cases. Like, are you, are you finding that um, the need for customization and the need for additional capabilities is relatively low? Or is it, or is it kind of what you expected? Or like, you know, are most use cases just capable of kind of getting out the door without any even interaction with the central team at all? Or mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, the need for um, custom capabilities always arises, especially, you know, when you have like 15, 20 teams running, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and uh, you, when you're asking teams to, uh, you know, fall into a, a particular, um, you know, set pattern that we've, we've uh, laid out there, Right, uh, it's it's a little hard for teams. They come up with these custom uh, requirements. So in that case, what we do is we we take the requirement and we see if if this uh, requirement has come up in this domain, there is definitely you know a, a chance that it will come up in other domains. So how do we generalize this and how do we automate this requirement, right? And roll it out as a service as opposed to just a one-off thing. Right, so we we try to roll out roll it out as a generic service, but then um, you know we we cannot just include everything that everybody needs. Right, sometimes it's just way off that it's so specific to their needs. Right, so in that case, what we will tell them is you have to tailor your requirements, not your requirements, the way the your implementation to the uh, the guidelines that we have provided. 
Mm-hmm. We cannot directly serve serve your request as you're asking. Yeah, that's. I think that it needs to fit into the greater organization in this way. And if you've got to do something custom, you do it custom. But it, like that's kind of the way a lot of people are doing. So I'm going to ask a question that I have no idea how to even ask it correctly. So it's 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 a difficult wording question around this. So if you can give anybody any any perspective, it's it's great. But like. How do you think about taking those requests and and generalizing them? Because like I I'm trying to conceptualize like I think we all get that in concept, but in actual action, like if you've got an, an example of hey we saw these these couple of different things and we saw the, how they connected, but again it's also one where I'm just like I have no idea how to even phrase the question. <laughs> Because it's it's really, but a lot of people are looking for like, how did this actually happen or, or how how could they replicate what you're doing? Because what you're talking about is so important to do. If we're not generalizing, then we're building nothing but uh, uh, an overcomplicated platform that can't scale because it's not flexible and agile and it can't really um, add additional capabilities because it becomes bloated and, and it becomes kind of what, what we've done historically of uh, customized capabilities over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I would like to uh, take a specific example here. So we have, obviously we have different domains and all of these domains have their own, uh, you know, Kafka instances. And uh, there was one this one particular use case where a Kafka, you know, uh, in one uh, one domain had to talk to a Kafka in uh, another domain. As a principle, in our platform, uh, we have federated governance. Um, like, there's no one-on-one communication with, between the domains. All these domains are under the federated umbrella, and they talk to each other um, under the federated governance. So this team is like, oh, ours is a one-off use case. Can you please have this Kafka instance talk to that Kafka instance so we could share the data? And we are like, okay, so this could be more general, right? Or rather, we we have to make it more general so domains can uh, talk to each other. And then we realize that if Kafka would have to talk to uh, another Kafka instance, then tomorrow Airflow will have to talk, right? So we had to automate the process of this cross-account uh, communication, right? And so... So we had to come up with a new module, which which simply does this cross account communication via the gov- via the federated governance, not like a one on one communication between one specific domain to the other, or, or one specific technology to another. It's it's yeah. like, hey, how do we manage this at, with like AMI or IAM? I, 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 I can never remember. Yeah. I think it's IAM instead of AM. AMI is like the little. Uh, blueprints or whatever. But anyway, uh, I haven't done AWS stuff in a long time. But uh, <laughs> no, I think that's a great example of like, hey, w- I get that this is a need, but like, we're just going to keep having this need come up more and more. And so how do we think about um, something that's probably relatively simple to do when you really do abstract it away? And then you go, okay, it's going to be more difficult in automating it to hit all these different technologies. But we can we can do that. I, I really like that example. Um, one thing that we were planning on talking about, uh, especially that again, I think a lot of people are really really interested in. That's been a really hot topic, but very difficult for people is the like secure access at scale. Um, you know, we had the Orpheum folks on, and they're they're a two hundred and fifty person company, and so um, uh, Argiris and Constantinus uh, um, were on and they um, were talking about they tried to do automated access, but they just didn't have the number of requests where it really made sense for, you know, three people to spend two or three months on this for a 250 person company when they're getting you know, at most 10 access requests a a week, right? Like it's just like fast access granting versus at your scale, you're talking about 15, 20 teams. Um, And, you know, especially at, at Disney scale, like, you know, those teams can be representing rather large domains and things like that. So how did you start to think about when did you start to think about automating that? Was it at the very start or was it, hey, we're, we're trying to figure out, again, we're trying to see the patterns first 
and then say, okay, what are the access patterns or, or how do you manage as well? Like, how do you think about that personas? But let, let's start with the kind of at the beginning. So somebody that wants to get to where you are, because you are in a very advanced state on this specific thing. So where did the, where would somebody start? And then we can talk about how you've kind of moved forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the access part has come up during the ideation phase itself. What I mean by that is when we plan to, uh, you know, make a new platform, one of the key requirements was how do we have centralized governance, right? The teams should be decentralized, but governance has to uh, be centralized, right? So that is where um, we kind of had an idea that, you know, we'll we'll have um, a federated account and that's uh, through which we will provision access. But it was not until um, our implementation phase that we we got um, you know like the rubber meets the road. Um, so really, when 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 the time came to provision access to our data platform, and especially talking about fifteen to twenty teams, where you know constantly people are being onboarded and offboarded and all that stuff, right? So that's when we decided that uh, we will normalize the access. Meaning that if, for example, somebody is a data scientist, right, and we traditionally know that they don't need access to PII data, right, they, their models can run off of non-PII data, right? So that's the persona that we will give them, that they will have access to non-PII data, right, as opposed to a data analyst who will have PII data, right? And then the the other um, aspect to this is financial data versus non-financial data, right? So there are some domains where, where the processing is happening on the financial data. So if your team is has presence in that domain, then your team members will have access to a persona which is dedicated for um, accessing financial data. Right. So if I am a person, the governance team decides I can have access to this financial data. Right. So we don't want to restrict that person to that financial data. So we'll say that if you are um, if, if you're able to access financial data, you can access all the data assets that are tagged as financial. Hmm. So it's it's a one or zero. Either you have access to financial data or you don't have access to financial data. It's not about, do I have access to this particular data asset or not? Right. So that's where we define personas based on the characteristics of the data, uh, like financial, PII, non-PII, and we normalized access. So that um, eliminated the need for people to come and say that, oh, I don't have access to this data set. I, now I want access to that data set, you know. Are you kind of then trying to really like the, one of the things that that has come up around doing persona based access, you know, role based access control is that one, we're, we're kind of creating new roles and two, that roles are very, very non-standard across the different domains. And so somebody that's got, you know, X role title in one is is going to have Y role title in another domain, but they have the exact same or, or similar jobs, um, similar like roles that they're actually doing, but that the role that it's titled isn't similar, right? It's, it's different. So like, ha- was it something that the organization is just very kind of focused on keeping roles with very, very strict definitions. And so it was something that you didn't already have to fight against or like what, what was kind of the situation where you could use role-based access control? Cause a lot of folks are finding that they can't, especially as new roles might be created. If you know, a data product manager or a data product owner or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting because uh, for us, uh, this, this data characteristics of, we have provided a hierarchy to it. So a financial uh, PII data is at the top of the hierarchy. So if if you are in that role, right, then you have access to everything else. So if you if you have access to financial data, then you automatically get access to general. But the other way is not true, right? If I have access to general because finance is the higher in the hierarchy, I will not get access. So because of this paradigm, um, we did not. Um, encounter that scenario that you're telling that, oh, in this particular domain, I'm having this role versus in that particular domain, I'm ha- I might have another role. 
Are, are you finding that with this, I, I'm just always, I mean, I guess I, I come from more of a financial services realm where there's always very, very specific, like, I don't know how you're going to use it. Therefore, I can't give you access until I know how you're using it. Are you finding that that you're in a in a space where there's that's not really a concern or are you finding people are sharing information as well outside of the mesh or like, you know, I can give an example, which especially in um, in financial services or whatever, like say I want access to zip codes, right? I want I want somebody's zip code and that's considered PII data. When I find out that you're just trying to grab the first three of the zip to get a general sense of where this person is, or, you know, you've asked for these five different PII columns, but it might be like, you know, name and and email and things like that. And you're just trying to figure out something weird, like how do people create their email addresses, say you're Google and you're trying to figure that out or say, um, you know, name, and then you're trying to get like some ethnographic information and some location information. And what you're actually trying to do is make sure that your models don't have any bias, right? (laughs) That, That you're not actually creating a biased model. So you need this sensitive information, but I can't give you that information until I know that how you're going to use it is compliant. Mm-hmm. Are you just not finding that that's not as much of a problem? Because I mean, you know, when I think of of, of a company like, you know, Disney streaming or whatever, you obviously have some regulations, the regulatory stuff, but it's not financial services regulatory, right? It's not that level of craziness. So are you just not finding that that's as much of a problem? Are you not finding that those use cases aren't emerging yet? Or like, is it just something where it's very, very clear what people can and can't do? Or like, how, how is that kind of manifesting? Or is it just not something that's come up yet? No, uh, we we also have such problems. And especially, you know, when we have so many people on the platform, so many users of the platform, there's always bound to be bad actors, right? Not intentionally, but, you know, in, in different ways. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's where uh, one thing is obviously the governance is uh, is in the picture there. That's why we have uh, we have them, right? So it's their job uh, to understand what each team is doing and they and why that team or members of that team need that kind of access, right? Uh, so that's what they are doing. But from our end, we we have our own uh, checks and balances in place. And what I mean by that is, first of all. We have set it up such a way that data cannot travel outside the mesh, right? It it has to stay inside the mesh. Uh, that's that's one thing. Um, the other thing is um, all all our users, right? They only have just read only access, no write access. Um, so the only people, uh, uh, the only roles that have write access is like service roles, right? So if only only these processes can write write the data. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like individual users can just do something and write data wherever they want, right? So we have um, we have cut down on all of it and um, put those checks and balances in place, and um, so so it worked for us. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny because um, she taught Pratik at um, Adidas, and they they put out a an interesting article where they said that in. Um, every data product, every column by default is marked as PII. So that way you, your data product owner literally just has to uncheck instead of go, did I get all of them? It's like, oh, I'm consciously unchecking that this is not. And somebody might say, why Why is timestamp marked as PII? Oh, sorry, I just didn't unmark it. Okay, I'm going to unmark it. You know? <laughs> but like exactly what you're talking about of those um there are always going to be things where people are poking at things and it's like, does this actually align with, with what we're trying to do from an ethics standpoint, or does this align, you know, not even regulatory, but like, and it's not a a bad actor. It's just like somebody that's like, I'm trying to figure something out. Is this something, um, you know, like, uh, Justin Cunningham, when he was on a really interesting example was, um, not really ethics wise, but it could, it could somehow flow into that of, when they were looking at restaurant listings, if 
there were a couple of pictures recently that were uploaded, or, or especially if there were multiple, many pictures that were uploaded with a very, very high quality camera. Like based on what brand of camera was uploading, you could tell if somebody was trying to spruce up their um, their listing because they had hired a professional photographer to come in and take, you know, high quality photos of their food and like, you know, and so there was that correlation causation of, okay, does somebody taking a high quality picture mean that this, this vendor is actually maybe going to spend on some ads on Yelp or whatever? No, but there's a high correlation that they actually hired somebody to do it. But like, so, you know, that wouldn't have been ever found if somebody wasn't poking around and finding interesting things. Um, but I like what you're talking about. If nothing can travel outside, so if something gets elevated to potential use case status, then you have risk management review, right? You yeah. have domains going, what is this person actually doing with it? Let's have a conversation. This yeah. is something um, uh, Salim Syed uh, had talked about uh, as well of uh, from Capital One about like risk management is important because you can't rely on the machines to understand all of your aspects of governance, mm -hmm. but you can set yourself up so that even if somebody is poking at something that's maybe not the best thing to be poking at, they can't do any real damage with it because <laughs> you've, you've cordoned it off so that there isn't anything that can happen and that you're like, Hey, we have people that are actually asking and having human to human conversations and going like, what are you actually trying to achieve here? And it might also lead to a better value conversation of, oh, you're trying to achieve that. We actually haven't put that in this data product. We should create something for you to serve that, that need because I now see that you have a use case and that you can have those conversations. So I, I like that, that structuring. What I would say is that you're, it's, it's very difficult to get to what you're talking about from my conversations with others. Do you have any kind of secret sauce that you, if someone were to, to come to you and say, like, how did how did you get here, right? Like, how did you how did you get along this process? Do you have anything that you would kind of recommend to them to to help them get to this kind of a setup where you can have uh, people that have more of an automated access control? Because that's that's kind of the dream for a lot of people, but they're also many years away in in a lot of cases. So I think. Um like I said, um, to get to automated access control, uh, first, your underlying fundamentals of, um, you know, how your data is stored, how it is shared, right? All of that has to be set in stone, um, right? Have your foundations ready and then, um, you know, work with your teams to see, identify the different access patterns uh, that would be needed, right? And then carve out uh, your game plan, so that's what I would um, I would recommend. Uh, you know, Jamak talks about input ports, about how you you bring in data, and output ports about how you serve data from data products to uh, the consumers. Are you are, like was that something that was part of the platform as well, the build? Because you're talking about there's kind of standardized access patterns, or is it more that you kind of have standardized storage and that you give people like more of a, a way to access, you know? Um, uh, which McCall it uh, Zalando, Max Schultz had talked about like every every domain has their own S3 bucket. And so there are a couple of tools that you can just point at the S3 bucket and there's just a couple of standard like API calls to get access to the bucket, but there's not like a standardized way of we are storing it in this kind of table format. We're kind of storing it in the, you know, maybe in in file format, but not necessarily like this is the way we're, we're doing that, but some other, um, companies, organizations doing data mesh have talked about, we have created standardized APIs and standardized ways of storing the, the data in such a way that somebody can jump from data product to data product to data product. And it's going to feel exactly the same. Is that something that the, the platform has, has built? And like, do you have any, um, any, almost advice on how to do that? Because it's something that a lot of people are, it's it's really hard to figure out how to ask that question appropriately because it is so like extremely specific and extremely technical, but also extremely non-specific and extremely like, <laughs> how do you, how do you standardize an experience kind of thing? 
Yeah, so for this, uh, the teams are autonomous um, to, to to define their output ports, right? So, uh, and we didn't want to put any restrictions. Uh, so we have three different uh, mechanisms. One is, like you said, uh, the core raw S3 storage. Um, then the other is, you know, from all our analytics tools, be it Snowflake, um, Databricks, right? So they have their own um, uh, pattern of role-based access, uh, to to the data sets and we do have apis but that's only in uh, the data science and and machine learning space where um the teams have exposed um apis to query the models and um, you know get um, the necessary information so it's not a very straightforward you know uh, answer but those three different that's uh, that's funny like i said I, I we did a panel with some folks leading data mesh journey and, and a lot of it is this is messy. Like that's kind of the 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 uh, overall theme that comes out of it is that would that it were perfect. Would that it were this very simple. Like this is the the way to do it. And here is my copy. You can copy from me and you can paste to your thing. But so much of it is still we're still in the early days of even figuring out how to explain what we're doing, let alone doing the right things. It's even like okay, we figured out the right things how do we explain this? It's so, uh, that's kind of what the podcast is about. It's just like having these open conversations about stuff. So, um, well. But it's interesting that you, I've learned that, oh, people, there will be a use case where people will want to jump from one data product to, to the other. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the trying to query from like nine different data products as, at once. And I'm just like, do you really need to, could you do like smaller combinations instead of trying to combine all the stuff? It's like, no, I, I talked to one person who said, and this, this is definitely an anti-pattern, but that they have a request internally to consume from what would be, and a lot of these aren't even created yet, but would be 50 plus data products for like a, a very comprehensive view type of thing. And it's just like, please don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> yeah, but the example sounds more like a Starburst use case. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so, we, I mean, we've covered a whole heck of a lot of things. Is there anything we didn't cover? I know we didn't quite go as much into the analogies around the, the fairy tale things. I think that was more my fault of, well, you know, where's the, the big bad witch or where's the, uh, the, the big bad wolf or anything like that. But is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to or any way you kind of want to wrap up the episode? Yeah, so there's one um, concept which I think we did and it helps uh, everyone else. So when we talk about data sets, right, we have a lot of internal data sets and then we have external data sets which vendors are sending us, right? And most of the places you see that all these data sets are co-located. And uh, in our case, um, we found that it's a big problem because we are not able to minimize uh, the blast radius, let's say something happens in, uh, some, with some vendor and something is compromised, right? And suddenly they have access to, because they're co-located, they have access to everything, right? Um, so to, to uh, work around this, what we did was we, we set up a, a special domain, which is called a demilitarized zone, uh, literally where that's the, that's the only domain where uh, it's the landing page for all of these vendors. So all of our domains are able to reach this domain via the federated account, whereas this particular domain is not able to talk to anyone else, right? Um, because that's that's the whole purpose. It's a demilitarized zone uh, and its blast radius is contained uh, in that domain, right? So I think um, everybody should consider doing it and it works, it worked very well for us. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm also seeing a lot more defensive mechanisms against external data too, because their quality can't be as assured. And, you know, and so there is a lot more of, hey, we're doing quality checks before we even do anything before we put in, is this going to break all of our downstream or is this going to, yeah, no, I I think there, there needs to be a lot more focus on not like not getting yourself tripped up because somebody else screwed up outside of your entire organization. So no, I, I really like that. I think that's a good little uh, kind of pattern for folks to use. So, well, 
Um, this has been such a uh, great episode. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's the best place to follow up? Anything specific you'd like them following up about? Yeah. So if you want to uh, reach me, you can uh, reach out on my uh, LinkedIn, which the link will be posted. Yes, it'll be in the show notes. You can also watch my uh, video um, talking at length about uh, data mesh and, uh, you know, all the extended uh, observability and um, different uh, aspects, um, the link of which will also be posted. Yes. Yeah, they'll definitely be in the show show notes. So, well, Himateja, this has been such a fantastic episode. So I really want to thank you for spending the time today. And I'd also like to thank everyone out there for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Himateja Madala, Senior Data Engineering Manager and Head of the Data Mesh Data Platform at Disney Streaming. You can find a link to her LinkedIn, as well as her presentation about the Disney Streaming Platform that she did at AWS reInvent in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one off or a month to month basis. You know, read kind of. Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.